thank you for joining us for the launch of the Innovation Accelerator 2021 Apparel Barometer. Uh, I'm Peter Stanbury, one of the report's authors, um, and I'd like to welcome our distinguished panel. Um, I'll ask them to introduce themselves a bit more fully in a minute, uh, but just to sort of do a quick tour of who everyone is. Um, from the US Cotton Trust Protocol, we have Tara Luckman. From RAP Compliance, Averes Safarian, Textile Exchange, Larry Pepper, and from um, April, uh, Craig, Craig Tribble. So why are we here? Why the barometer? Um, the textile and apparel sector has long been under intense scrutiny um, over its environmental and social impacts. For example, a March 2020 report by the BBC claimed that fashion accounts for about 10% of all greenhouse gas, gas emissions. Um, and the World Economic Forum claims the sector to be the world's uh, second biggest consumer of water. On the human side, there remain considerable challenges in setting up institutions in Bangladesh, which do not weaken the protections afforded to workers after the Rana Plaza disaster. And of course, there's the situation of the Uyghurs in, in Zhangjiang, which is posing such a challenge to the cotton sector. However, the industry is taking significant strides to respond. A huge range of initiatives and approaches are being taken by companies in the sector to reduce their environmental and social footprint and move towards genuinely sustainable apparel. Many of these have been set out and debated at Innovation Forum's annual Sustainable Apparel and Textiles conferences over the last five years. Yet much remains opaque of all the attention the sector has received and all the work that has been done. Many questions remain, of which some of the more important appear to be, are the allegations made about the sector's impact entirely correct? Of the approaches that companies are taking, which are the most effective in driving real change? What does a credible business strategy and a set of targets look like today? And, and what policy framework needs to be in place to support companies in delivering that? So we thought, there's a need for a cool, detached assessment of these and other issues. Uh, and to address this, um, we at Innovation Forum developed the Sustainable Apparel Barometer, which we hope provides will provide a rigorous analysis of the environmental and social impact of the sector from raw material production through to retail and home delivery, and what approaches are the most effective in addressing these impacts. Um, the aim of the report um, has been to cut through the noise and give some clear bases as to what a state-of-the-art sustainability strategy looks like in 2021. So what did we focus on? Um, obviously, uh, the apparel sector is rather large. So to look at the whole thing was, was simply not going to be feasible. Um, so what we've done is to focus on three deep dives into cotton, viscose, and issues around standards and compliance. And then from those deep dives, to try to draw together some overarching lessons, which emerged from these case studies, which we hope provide some guides to what a, a serious sustainability strategy in the sector looks like. So before I go to the speakers, just um, a, a quick few points on housekeeping. Um, from here, I'm going to ask the supporters to introduce themselves, <coughs> the panelists to introduce themselves. Uh, and then we're going to look at some of the key findings um, of the report and illustrate each of these with, with, with examples from our speakers. Uh, and then depending on how time allows, uh, we only have um, 55 minutes left, we'll try and come to audience questions from the audience. So um, you'll see that there's a chat box um, at the bottom of your screen. Um, so if you do want to, to make a point, please put your question in the chat box. Um, uh, but bearing in mind, I have to multitask and I'm a bloke. Um, therefore, keep your keep your comments brief. Um, things that look like um, paraphrases of War and Peace, I probably won't come to. But if you manage to put your question in a pithy way, I'm more likely to be able to come to it. So without further ado, I'm going to um, let our 
um, panelists say a little bit about themselves. And in my usual, my usual practice is to just go in the way people are around the screen. And as that works, that means I'm starting Tara with you. So um, over to you, Tara. Thank you, Peter. What a pleasure to join you today. Um, I'll introduce myself as a fashion and textile sustainability consultant and an advisor to the US Cotton Trust Protocol. I have a background in brand sustainability, so I've worked for about 20 years in apparel brands, driving the sustainability agenda from raw materials to manufacture and through to customer communication. It has been such an interesting evolution from 20 years ago when it was a tiny focus of the most forward-thinking brands to really now we can see it at the top of the agenda for the whole sector and the momentum that we see today. So coming on to the Cotton Trust Protocol and what it is, it's a new programme. It was launched about a year ago and it's intending to set a new standard in more sustainably grown cotton. So it's a farm level science based programme that's bringing quantifiable and verifiable goals and measurement to the sustainable cotton production in the US in order to drive us in continuous improvement. It's based on the growing practices that have been uh, more sustainable uh, in the US cotton industry for decades, continuously improving and we have further to go. Uh, we already have uh, 300 members in the programme. We're aligned to um, various industry goals, you know, tight alignment with what this, the industry's got to achieve, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, good recognition from the Textile Exchange and Forum for the Future as a programme that brands can use to hit their targets on more sustainable fibre adoption. We're also members of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition collaborating there. We're scaling at pace. 10% now of US cotton is already in the protocol consumption management system. So our 2020 crop, and we're aiming to double that in 2021. And by 2025, we should have 50% of the US crop in our program. Two big contributions to the sustainable cotton agenda coming from this program. The first is transparency. So we're opening up access to robust data from the field which is going to enable brands to accurately measure and track the environmental impacts of the cotton in their supply chain um, with validity and confidence to be able to communicate and report about it. Um, and we're enabling that with a tracking technology. So we're tracking cotton's movement through the value chain, providing assurance of its origin. I'll leave it there for a quick introduction, but I'm looking forward to digging deeper as we discuss. Thanks very much, Tara. And um, continuing around my screen, um, Avedis, over to you next. Thank you, Peter. And uh, like Peter said, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to all of you, depending on where you are. We've got over 150 people on this uh, webinar, so I'm, I'm really thrilled to be a part of it. Um, I'm Avedis Seferian, President and CEO of RAP, Worldwide Responsible Accredited Production. For those of you not familiar with RAP, we are a social compliance certification program. In fact, we are the largest independent factory-based certification program for the SOM products sector. Uh, been around since the year 2000, and as Tara pointed out, uh, we've seen a lot of change in these past couple of decades, especially in the level of attention social compliance has been getting uh, and the recognition of the importance of uh, responsible sourcing practices with regards to the larger business sustainability question, uh, not just reputational, but also physical and economic and financial. And of course, the pandemic has had a uh, profound effect on, on sort of that and on further elevating the importance of this issue. So I'm really excited to be a part of this uh, webinar and also very thrilled to be supporting the, the uh, barometer um, as a resource, as Peter put it, uh, that's meant to um, quiet the noise. Uh, we do obviously need to have some noise in that we're communicating with each other, but we want it to be helpful, thoughtful, and, and ultimately practical. 
Uh, and that's what I am I'm so excited uh, to, to be contributing to and to uh, I'm looking forward to the discussion that we're going to have around uh, these issues. That's great. Thank you. And so to go to, from, from the Americas to Asia, um, over to you next, uh, Craig. Thanks, Peter. And great pleasure to join you from uh, Riau, Sumatra, Indonesia this evening. Um, I'm a forester and ecologist. I work for April. And April's a leading producer of fibre, pulp and paper with forestry plantations and manufacturing operations here in Riau province. Uh, we're the predominant supplier of wood-based fibre to our sister companies, APR and Sattery, hence my uh, uh, presence this evening. And uh, they're world-leading manufacturers of, of viscose, of course. We manage about uh, 450,000 hectares of forest plantation and about 360,000 hectares of conservation as part of a production protection approach. Um, it's, a, it's a commitment to the sustainable production of renewable plantation wood fibre while supporting effective conservation and restoration work. We continue to work hard to accelerate our protection and restoration work, which is a key interest for me as an ecologist, while at the same time uh, advancing our circularity in our manufacturing processes. And our strategy of, of uh, one hectare of, of natural forest for every hectare of production plantation, which is sort of encapsulated in that nature needs half concept, is, is one example of the scale of the challenge we've, we've set ourselves here. Um, I, I see the barometer as a, as a really positive step forward, Peter, and, and um, in this whole conversation around, around fibre, and uh, very much looking forward to our conversation tonight. Thank you. Thanks so much, Craig. And last but certainly by no means least, um, over to Larry. Hi, I'm LeRae Pepper. I'm a co-founder and the CEO of Textile Exchange. I'm also a cotton farmer. I grew up on a cotton farm and still involved in our family. So fibers of the land are certainly near and dear to my heart. Uh, so that's uh, you know part of my DNA. We work as a textile exchange across a portfolio of materials. We're looking for best in class uh, and a direction of travel predominantly on environmental issues, but certainly everything ripples out for there. So we want to move away from the status quo that may be chemically intensive or are not using best practices into, you know, systems and initiatives. There's more and more of those. We're excited about seeing people taking those first steps into the initiatives that are doing less harm, that are using more sustainable practices into, you know, actually things that are regenerative, organic, you know, biodynamic. So there's, we want people to move along that continuum of where we are actually using fibers that are contributing positively to the farm, the family, the community, to our world. So it truly is about people and planning. <laughs> Calere, thanks very much indeed. Um, so what we're going to do now is to, to, to move on to um, some of the findings um, the, which we which came out of the research for the um, for the barometer. Um, and we think that there's probably five overarching themes which uh, which emerge from 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 the work. But I'd just like to say before we go into that, thank you very much indeed to to the speakers for sort of their participation today, but also for sort of backing us in doing this work. Um, we wouldn't have been able to do it without without your help. So the first sort of theme that emerged from all three of the of the chapters was um, sort of don't keep it simple. Um, there seems to be in uh, not just in the apparel sector, but in quite a lot of the sustainability world, uh, a desire to sort of almost to see one magic bullet as being the answer. Um, and that actually that isn't necessarily very helpful. And we need to get away from focusing only on one thing. So take certification 
um, as a good example of this. Um, there's a very considerable focus within standards and certification on trying to reduce the number of standards that are out there. Um, you know, I've been around this business for sort of 25 years and, you, you know, you go back to sort of Euro 96, there, there were no standards at all, but there's been an explosion of them since then. And I think there's a realisation now that that, that that actually overburdens uh, particularly supplier companies, supplier factories, um, and that therefore we must cut them down, we must cut them down, we must cut them down. Uh, but is that necessarily the right way forward? Because um, there's actually so much more to the question than just reduction in the number of standards. I mean, you know, issues like second party versus third party audit. How do you uh, come up with standards which simultaneously are uh, globally relevant, but also can be applied in, in quite different um, local sets of local norms? So how can change be achieved in, in sort of complex situations? Uh, now, RAP has done a lot of work in this space uh, on what they call symphonization, which I think has been a, a very helpful way of, of trying to take a slightly more nuanced view to, to, to how standards and certification might, might, might be developed. And I'd like to come to you, Avidis, on, um, on that point. So perhaps you can say a little bit more about that. Sure, I'd be happy to, Peter. Yes, um, like you said, the the history that we have witnessed these past couple of decades has been one of a proliferation of standards, um, and it has not proven helpful, uh, nor has the attempts, uh, multiple of them, to cut them down uh, to, to one, uh, the attempts that go by the moniker harmonization. Um, and they've all failed, and they've all failed for the reasons you articulated. There is complexity out there, and this industry, more than any, understands the importance of sizing. You can't really have a one-size-fits-all solution. Uh, it doesn't get you what you need. It doesn't meet different people's needs at where they are in their supply chain journeys. So over that course, harmonization as a term itself got to be loaded with sort of a negative meaning because of all the failed attempts. So we wanted to come up with a solution that does speak to reducing audit fatigue because that is real, but is not burdened with the negative baggage of the term harmonization. And so we came up with this new term, symphonization, uh, which really takes, takes on the imagery of a, an orchestra. Uh, and the idea there is you're not going to have beautiful music made by just one single instrument playing a single note. You do need a variety of instruments to collectively make beautiful music. But at the same time, while you definitely don't want to keep it simple and insist on a single answer, you have to recognize that you have already several good options out there that together can form that orchestra. You don't have to then reinvent the wheel every time for yourself or push a proprietary program or you know, create an additional standard. Uh, so there is a already established set of professional, independent, global organizations out there that do this. Um, and all of them are slightly different from each other, but all of them do address the issues um, and various facets of it. You've got organizations like RAP that focus on the social side. You've got other certification programs that'll focus on the environmental side. We at RAP don't claim to be a one-stop solution. We don't think we're the experts on the environment. So you shouldn't expect one program to be able to meet all your sustainability needs. Identify that set of partners and you're only gonna need a handful. Um, you don't need to, as I said, reinvent the wheel every time. Uh, and together you will have that either a chamber orchestra, if you want, you're starting off and you wanna start small or a full-size symphony orchestra, if you are that far along advanced in your program and want to deep dive into you know, various uh, issues uh, beyond simply the, the first tier or, or beyond simply that initial um, uh, verification audit. So uh, that's the heart of symphonization, the idea that you have professional partners out there. You're not going to be able to do it with just one, but you don't need to recreate your, your, reinvent the wheel or create your own solution every time. All that does is 
exacerbate the auto fatigue problem. That's the solution out there. So don't keep it simple, but you don't have to overcomplicate it by trying to do everything on your own either. That's the message of symphonization. Okay, thank you very much indeed. So if the first conclusion is the need to sort of take a more holistic view of what's going on and a more nuanced view of what's going on, uh, I think the second finding was very much be, the re, being realistic and realism around the challenges that that, that sustainability um, throws up. Uh, and I'm going to bring Larry in at this point because she and I have had a, a sort of ongoing discussion over the last um, the last sort of month or so, uh, because um, I find the that in cotton companies have gone from promising 100 percent 100 percent sustainable cotton by 2025 to, to, to promising 100 percent more sustainable cotton by 2025 and that arguably in my view anyway that sounds potentially slightly dishonest one is trying to elide sustainable and more sustainable um yeah. and you know to what extent does that confuse consumers um but and i'm going to come to Lorraine at this point because she would say well sustainability is a journey so Lorraine, over to you well yeah it is you know where do you account for continuous improvement and moving along best practices. And so we've found, yes, the word sustainable has been around for a long time. Uh, we've got the word regenerative starting to pop up and being used a lot. And so it is about what gives clear definition and clear meaning. And so when people started saying this is sustainable, like, what does that mean? Does it have, you know, because it's being used across a multitude of practices, a multitude of products that, you know, we're a sustainable city. I'm a sustainable farm like what is the true meaning of that and so there's been some interesting things happening on the legal front and with things like the federal trade commission and making legal claims about trying you know brands have gone out there and said i'm a sustainable product but like what backs that up where's their legal meaning and so we have actually shifted because we're working on a direction of travel away from that status quo we actually for a lot of primarily legal reasons and actually to be authentic and honest like you talk about the new nuances of it is a journey. We've got improvement to make. There's always improved practices for soils. There's improved practices for ecosystems. There's improved pack practices. And so at what point in time do you become sustainable? And do we want to use the word sustainable? Because don't we want to be restorative? Don't we want to be regenerative? Don't we want to address those holistic solutions? And so the bottom line is we've gone to using the word more sustainable because the word sustainable doesn't have a legal definition. So you can actually can't say, like when you say this is organic, there's legal laws that say to qualify for the use of the word organic, here's what that means. And the bottom line is there's not a legal definition for sustainable. So we feel like we're being more honest and more reflective of the change that we're creating, that there's a number in the, in the world of cotton, there's a number of initiatives, 11 to 12, 13 of them, more coming, that are moving along this continuum, this direction of travel to more sustainable practices. And so we feel like that that accurately reflects the journey that we're on. Yeah, thanks for that, Lorraine. And I think it is it is important that the the difficulty of the challenge is um, is recognised. But again, to come back to Vedas's point, that to not get scared by that. Yes, there's complexity out there, but it is a question of taking a step at a time. Um, but if there is um, perhaps a lack of reality sometimes of players in the sector, I think it's also true that sometimes the critics of the sector are, are, are slightly less realistic than might be desired. Um, if we take, for example, the issue of, um, of, of, of reforestation, which is something which is being uh, pressed very strongly by a number of NGOs, um, if you actually start to work the numbers, uh, you know, companies like April will more or less have to reforest the whole of Indonesia to be able to satisfy the claims that are being made of them. 
Um, the report talks um, to some degree about what um, April is doing um, in Indonesia to look at reforesting. Um, so perhaps come to you, uh, Craig, to talk about that in a little bit more detail. Yeah, thanks, Peter. I, I, look, from the ecologist hat, I'd love to try and reforest all of Indonesia. I think it'd be a fantastic challenge, but the reality is a lot more difficult. You know, there's 285 million people living in Indonesia. It's it's a growing um, democracy and, and, you know, they're real challenges. It, and to be honest, it, it really is complicated and it is difficult. So I want to be realistic but not pessimistic about the sort of challenges that we face. And I think as the barometer notes, actually, in, in some of the final recommendations, and you mentioned it before, there is, there is no magic bullet. Reforestation is certainly one strategy, but it's not certainly not the only strategy out there. Sustainability cannot be achieved by simply focusing on a single idea. I think you need to recognise operational context and clearly there's unlikely to be single, simple solutions. That's frustrating for, for people, of course. Um, and I, I think you're, you and Lorraine touched on some really important points. Uh, and part of that is about being honest, which is another uh, recommendation from your report. You know, change in direction, implementing effective long-term sustainability solutions takes time and it needs to be done properly. And monitoring, reporting, verification, they're all critical parts of that process. It's a long process. Um, and part of it is also fundamentally understanding what the actual problem is. Um, and that involves doing a root cause analysis and moving beyond what we've seen a lot of, which is actually addressing the symptoms and really addressing the problem. And I think the barometer might describe that as doing the heavy uh, analytical heavy lifting. I think I've got that right, Peter. <laughs> and these challenges can only be addressed effectively. You've actually read it, which is very impressive. <laughs> if they're properly understood. Um, there are plenty of examples, Peter, of um, perfectly excellent solutions addressing the completely wrong problem. Um, and finally, I just want to reference the point that it's, it's absolutely critical to really work with others. Um, certainly investing in in-house capability is important. But no one has all the answers um, or, and no one can account uh, for all the perspectives of particularly of those people who are affected uh, on the ground. And so I think it's important that recognising it, it's complicated and difficult. You're, you're bound to make mistakes, um, but I think remaining optimistic is really critical and not being afraid to take those first steps. Thanks. OK, thanks so much indeed, Craig. Um, so moving on, um, if there's a need to um, be realistic about the challenge, the third conclusion from this from this report is that therefore there's a need to be able to plot the journey to sustainability. Um, I mean, historically, what's tended to be the case is that um, when told that they're not sustainable enough, uh, many in the apparel sector threw their arms up and said, well, it's very complicated. Supply chains are frightfully, you know, multifaceted, very opaque. We can't possibly do anything. That's no longer an excuse. Um, you can trace these supply chains uh, and U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol has demonstrated you can trace cotton right from the field, right to the garment um, it's, it's, it's made, it's created into. So complexity is now no longer an excuse. So perhaps, um, uh, Tara, you can, you can say something about um, how you've gone about that process of demonstrating that chain of custody all the way through. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, just, just to reflect what we've already acknowledged, uh, it's not one size fits all and it is complex, it is challenging. So there is heavy lifting to be done. We're absolutely committed to really uh, being able to 
provide the heavy lifting at farm level for cotton in the US in order that people can make good decisions elsewhere in the supply chain so that brands can make those important uh, sourcing decisions based on solid information because there's so much at stake. So we're investing in getting the robust assured measurements um, uh, cotton up through the value chain through tracking the movement of that cotton to support those sourcing decisions. Um, so we're collecting primary data from all of our participating farms, applying rigorous assurance around that data collection, and then working with advanced agricultural data modeling tools to understand um, uh, the specific impacts relevant to the local context and what's the pathway to improvement so that we can um, collaborate with our farmers to really uh, improve in line with climate science. So for the first time, brands and retailers are going to be able to access year-on-year field-level data demonstrating the progress that US cotton is making on a very specific uh, measures, not more sustainable uh, as a broad brush, but actually specific impacts on land use, soil use, uh, soil loss, water, energy, uh, greenhouse gases, and soil carbon. So we're getting to really specific, locally relevant data analysis, empowering farmers on their journey to improvement, but also empowering the brands through tracking that information with the cotton as it moves and tracks its way through their supply chain with a technology, a blockchain tracking solution, um, to be able to make robust claims, to be able to talk more confidently to their consumers uh, about the impacts of the cotton in their products. Thank you very much indeed. Um... But I think what's also interesting is it's that the traceability is incredibly important, but there are a lot of other factors um, which are necessary for sustainability. Um, and um, I know Textile Exchange, um, Larray, you've been working um, on something called the Delta Framework to try and map all of these different issues and sort of to be able to plot a sort of uh, direction of travel, for want of a better expression. So perhaps you could say a bit about that, because I certainly found that very interesting reading. Yeah, actually, the Delta framework is from a consortium of us. I know like uh, ISIL has been funding it as well as Better Cotton Initiative. It's working across other crops like coffee. We've got Cotton Connect working on it. So there's a number of people piloting the Delta framework. And so if we're going to make this investment in change, it is how we measure it. And there could be dozens of ways to do it, but that synthesize it into how are, you know, what's the methodology that we're going to use on key performance indicators, not dozens of them, but a dozen of them. So the Delta framework has synthesized it, brought it down. We're actually going to be piloting this across not just cotton, which is where we're piloting this year, but into our other land-based fiber materials, whether that's wool or cashmere or um, alpaca, and even as we go into pilots with man-made cellulosex, of how do we really capture what we call ROI squared. You're making an investment. We're asking the brands to make an investment in more sustainable and responsible organic fiber. So what does it look like for them to have a return on their investment? If I'm paying more, show me that I'm having an impact on carbon. Show me that I'm having an impact on animal welfare. Show me. And so I think something like the Delta framework is something, again, we're trying to get one common tool to have um, a way to communicate progress against goals and the, those key things, whether that's carbon, water stewardship, biodiversity. So it is about the key messages and being able to convey value that we're really breaking away from a price paradigm into a value paradigm to because we're asking for more investments to be made at the land-based level. I can't grow organic cotton on a maybe. It has to be with clear market messages so that I can make those investments into creating a, a dynamic and implementing best practices on my farm. Thanks, Larry. Um, Avedis, I think you want to come in on this as well. 
Yes, um, and of all the conclusions that the paper arrives at, I mean, they're all valuable and important. I think this one is worth thinking about in the sort of larger philosophical sense because it is a journey. Sustainability, uh, too many of the critics in particular tend to think of it as a destination. Um, and that's not what this is. We're never gonna get to a point where we're going to be able to declare victory and say we are now sustainable. It is an ongoing, constant journey with multiple facets. Craig made this point. Actually, every, every one of us have made this point, that <clears> there are all kinds of different elements to it. One of my continuing frustrations with the conversation around sustainability is that it does tend to focus largely on the environment, and, and that is well-deserved. It is a very important part of the discussion. But what I liked about the barometer and this discussion is we recognize that there is a more holistic approach that's required, and that includes the workers, that includes the social compliance side, for example. So the complexities that we've all alluded to are real. Uh, there's been some uh, uh, back and forth on the chat about, you know, uh, needing bold strokes and not being able to do it with intermediate steps. And all that is true. You can't cross a canyon in two small leaps, uh, but there are multiple canyons to be crossed here. So the idea is you have to understand that you can't do it all alone, A, and B, you can't do it all at once. So plotting the journey, I like the way you put it, uh, Peter, uh, is is the important element here to pick and pick the battles you can win, pick the battles you're able to find good partners for, and recognize that it is an ongoing journey. It's not simply, I'm gonna cross this canyon and I'm there. So I wanted to make sure we emphasize that point. Thanks, um, and that um, in, in, in true talk radio style, leads us smoothly on to the next of our conclusions, the fourth conclusion, which is about the need for collaboration. That, that um, as, as you said, Evidis, this is not something that a single organization could do on its own. There's, there's a need for, for much better collaboration. There's lots of talk about it, but the reality is much, is much, there is much less of it. And what we found from the research is that there's the need for collaboration in sort of two, two vectors. The first is uh, better collaboration between the corporate sector and government. Um, because in many cases, the issues that are faced by the um, apparel sector are not specifically industry issues, they're societal issues. You know, look at the challenge, for example, of the um, ready-made garments uh, industry in, in Bangladesh, you know, that the power of that sector within the Bangladeshi, um, within Bang Bangladeshi parliament means that, that, that getting change to happen is, is quite difficult. So there's a need to work more closely between industry and government. But there's also a need for much better vertical integration between different players in the industry. Um, and as we show in the report, the data shows pretty clearly that despite lots of claims to the contrary, actually most brands and retailers will not invest in their suppliers. Um, and until that changes, um, it's going to be difficult to, to make uh, collaboration, uh, to make sustainability sustainable. Um, I mean, to come back to you, Craig, you, you were beginning to talk earlier about the need for, for collaboration, particularly on the ground. So perhaps you'd like to pick up on that point in a little bit more detail. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Peter. And it, I think it's been really well covered by some of the panelists already, but the simple reality is that nobody has all the answers. Um, and in fact, recognising the context, expectations and interests of your stakeholders and rights holders, and then directly involving them is key to ensuring that both nature and society can mutually benefit from any of these sort of sustainability projects we're talking about. So this includes, I think, developing relationships along supply chains, but for us here on the ground, one of our key partners, for example, are local communities who actually live in and around our plantation and conservation areas. 
And the key interests of these community partners are actually quite practical, tangible, and uh, pragmatic. And so, um, you know, we need to come up with solutions that address their immediate concerns. They don't care about SDGs or global commitments or certification. Uh, they care about the things that directly impact their ability to put food on the table and provide certainty for their families, security for their families. Um, and so in saying that, I think collaborations also need to recognise the need for technical partners, reputable and experienced actors for us in the environment side, uh, it's uh, people like Flora and Fauna International, you know, Wildlife Conservation Society, Earthworm Trust, you know, those sort of technical people who can bring um, and help you structure and deliver on your commitments. As, as well, I should say, it's critical to engage with your critics. Um, and it's not always easy. And in some cases, it's not always possible to achieve agreement uh, with all those involved in collaborations. But it is critical that perspectives are acknowledged. And I think that's why it's important for all parties to accept a science-based approach in working together because science provides a common ground for, and I'm not just because I'm a scientist, by the way, although I am biased, science provides a common ground, a common language, and also a common way to report, monitor, and verify claims. Um, and large scale sustainability projects like the ones we're working on here in Rio can only benefit from taking a science-based approach and, use, and leveraging off that for collaborations with local communities, governments, technical experts, universities, research organisations and other, other networks to inform our strategy and guide outcomes. Um, the, these collaborations from our perspective are, are absolutely critical to, to the success. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Craig. Much appreciated. Um, okay, so we've gone through four of for our conclusions and, and the last is perhaps the most significant, uh, which is that sustainability is only really going to work in a context of addressing wider business models. Um, and there is probably a need for a fairly fundamental shift in how the sector operates. Um, and perhaps the COVID uh, crisis has, has shown that in rather stark contrast, stark relief. Um, as at July this year, um, 21 brands still had not paid for goods that have been ordered and delivered during the COVID outbreak. Uh, and that's $16 billion of revenues, which are not there to improve workers' pay, to ensure that veterans can in invest in health and safety, and to ensure that environmental degradation doesn't take place um, in the way in which cro uh, textile crops are manufactured. Uh, you know, fast fashion. Um, you know, we, 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 many of us like the idea of being able to, you know, buy just the latest look, um, you know, in the high street days after it's been on the catwalk. Uh, but that can lead both in factories to excessive overtime on the part of workers and obviously huge amounts of, of, of clothes that gets discarded, almost never worn. So until those practices, those fundamental business models that companies employ are questioned and addressed, um, it's very difficult to see how sustainability in the sector can be sustainable. Um, or at least at the very least, uh, claims around sustainability need to be taken with, with, a, with a sort of pinch of salt. So really what needs to happen is that sustainability needs to become central to business decision making within organisations. Um, obviously, we're beginning to see some shifts that might help that happen. Um, we're seeing um, beginning the introduction of um, due, due diligence um, supply chain regulation um, in Germany and the and, and, and Europe, and even I think in the US they're they're beginning to look at it as well, and the UK. So um, so that may well shift things. And I think Tara, you you wanted to pick up on that point. Yeah, I do think it's a really interesting time. I mean, um, 
quite a large portion of the sector has been inviting regulation for some time, actually, and not shying away from that because they're looking for a level playing field and fairness um, in trading sustainably uh, and, and making the investment so that the investment, you know, uh, and the, the work to deliver a more sustainable fashion economy is shared is a shared burden and not only picked up by the leaders in the sector. Um, so I think, you know, uh, implements like the Circular Economy Action Plan and the textiles roadmap in the EU will bring a lot more focus and help businesses in a supported way, actually, to transition to a more sustainable future because it does need to be regulated. It needs to be fair. Um, and actually engaging in that policy conversation right now is important because regulators that you know typically are not experts in the complexities of our sector and that you know the depth that we've been talking today so you need to join that conversation and comment on those policy measures through forums like the textile exchange and the, the discussions we're having today to really make sure that the policy that comes fits yeah i think that's good i think that's very good advice um notwithstanding that politicians always want to pretend that they're experts on whatever the topic is at the moment um but i think that, that they're um we, we know that not always to be the case. I think also to pick up on that point, I think it's important to make sure that well-intentioned regulation doesn't lead to adverse consequences. You know, that if you have, uh, you know, because there, there is a risk that it just leads um, companies to, to, to go towards larger, perhaps Western suppliers where things are simpler to manage than, than, than perhaps elsewhere in the world, which again, maybe comes to the, to the importance of, of what Avedis and his organisation does. Um, but yes, I think that will be an interesting time to actually see how, how that does shift the industry. Okay, right. Well, that 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 sort of roll, wraps up the, the the structured part of the of the session. We've we've gone through the the, you know, the five conclusions from the report. Um, so we're now getting some quite interesting questions um, from um, from the from the audience. Uh, so I'm going to sort of read them out. Um, Jeff um, Strahan asked Tara and Larray um, to um, talk about uh, the, the Danish APA EPA has painted a rather bad picture of of organic cotton, and certainly. Some of the early research I did um, gave a slightly more nuanced view of, of, of organic cotton. So perhaps um, Larray and Tara, you could make a few comments on that. Sure. I think it's interesting, you know, that overall the direction of travel for organic is about, you know, the elimination of synthetic fertilizers, the elimination of toxic and persistent chemicals. And it is, uh, it, it truly is an, a, a destination and a journey as well. So I know there are several different studies that have gone out, but we have a lot of evidence through Rodell Institute and some other university-based research that organic and, and the organic center, there's a lot of positive benefits when it comes to building soils. Um, we even see it in, in the work that US Tr Trust Protocol is doing on soil and Soil Health Institute of the importance of building soils and moving away from synthetic fertilizers. And so there's, it's like when you take an LCA, LCAs are very interesting. They're a snapshot in a particular time and they don't always take a, they don't have a full picture of everything that's going Going on. It doesn't talk about the biodiversity. It doesn't talk about, you know, the health of the community with the clean water because it doesn't have the pesticides, chemicals in it. So I think, um, you know, any type of research you have to look has to be balanced in the broader context of what's happening. Okay. I think that's right. And I think there's value, there's immense value in progressing sustainability, both for organic and for conventionally grown cotton across the piece, really. You've acknowledged in the report the, the scale, the scaling challenge around organic at the moment. But, but of course, it's contributing enormous learning to, to the sector. And we have to keep, keep cross-populating the learning on um, sustainable inputs at farm level, techniques um, that farmers can adopt on all practices. So in the trust protocol, it's agnostic, actually. So all, all 
types of cotton farmers in the US uh, will be able to measure their farm data and we'll be able to learn from all of those different types of practices in quite a balanced and comparable way. Okay, thanks, Tara. Um, Andrea Canzano has come up with an interesting point. Uh, can you really change production models without changing the consumer model on apparel? Um, obviously, the, the million-dollar question is, or actually the billion-dollar question is, do consumers really care? Um, you know, I mean, certainly with the smallholder report that we did last year, there was quite a notable gap between what consumers say they believe on sustainability versus what they actually do when they're they're choosing which product to buy. Um, um, Avedis, I mean, I know you're not specifically a consumer-facing uh, certification, but I'd be I'd be very interested in your views about um, you know how the the brand and retail companies need to think about um, their relationship with, um, with with consumers. Yeah, that's a great question, Peter, and and does speak to that last conclusion as well about addressing not just business models across the, the the spectrum, which is critical, right? I mean, you heard from from Laria and Tara uh, a specific example, but just broadly speaking, everything we do in society from sort of a business point of view is about trade-offs. And you have to understand that you, you need to take into account, you know, somebody can come up and say organic is what you want to do, but that involves certain costs. And I don't just mean in the economic sense. I mean, you know, certain benefits to the environment are outweighed perhaps by greater water use and other potential harm in other areas. So understanding where that sweet spot is, is going to be how you move forward, uh, incorporating that, that business model. Um, similarly, you have to understand the larger consumption model, which is the specific question you, you, were, you were asking about. And, and the challenge with consumers, as you've noted, is, uh, well, first of all, they're not monolithic, right? There's this sense that there is this body of consumers and you just have to sort of talk to them all in, in a collective. And that's obviously not the case. You've got various generational differences. You've got obviously various income differences, all of which factor in. It's one thing for, you know, a... Uh, um, college student who's living still off of mom and dad's bank account to make decisions at these at their college store versus somebody that's trying to take care of a single uh, a single mom or a single dad taking care of four kids. Uh, the challenge with consumers uh, be beyond that to me is that they uh, tend to be very good at uh, expressing outrage for for punishing bad behavior, and that's a good thing, right? You hear about all the boycotts and the sit-ins or the die-ins on the on high street, um, but they're not as good at consistently rewarding good behavior, right? So that's always been the challenge, and 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 bad behavior should be punished, absolutely. Those campaigns have value, but they tend to be short-lived, and they tend to be you know singular in their focus we'd like to see where consumers are able to reward good behavior consistently so you have not just an incentive for business to not behave badly but actually a positive incentive for business to behave well and we're getting there i think along the lines of some of the stuff tara brought about uh, uh, just in terms of being able to share information with consumers in ways that is easily accessible to them and easily verifiable, validatable, whether it's blockchain or whether it's through a certification program, uh, so that consumers know that what they're getting is an independently valid reflection of the practice of the brand or retailer in question, and they can then make a decision according to that. So I do see in the, in the future, the ability to better communicate your sustainability practices to the consumer in a way that they can then make purchasing decisions based off of. But it's going to be a tough road because financial concerns will remain top of mind. 
And that, again, circles back to the point you made, right? The fifth point. You have to have sustainable business models. It's just not going to be possible for you on the manufacturing side even to tell a factory, I demand you treat your workers well. There was a question about, you know, wage levels. You you can only push so far before it becomes impossible for that factory to stay in business. To be sustainable, to have that advanced improvement in, in lifestyles and, 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 and responsibility, you first need to have a going concern. Otherwise, everything else becomes moot. So those business models, those consumption models, they all play into it. And understanding that bigger picture is increasingly more critical and, and, and where the challenge lies. And, and it, it ends up being about those trade-offs and finding that, that, that sweet spot because there is not going to be, as we've already said, a single simple answer. Larray, you had your hand up. Yes, absolutely. We've been having a lot of conversations over the past year and a half with our members, and we're at 640 plus, about the dynamics of where do we get to that ROI squared, because truly the the number one reason our brands and retailers don't buy more sustainable, responsible, organic fibers in general is because it costs more. There's a higher cost associated with that. So it really is about the paradigm shift from a, a, a price that, you know, that the best price possible and the drive down to, you know, the, the challenges with a living wage and the challenges with fair prices to farmers. And so that really changes the dynamics. So the exciting news is that we do have a number of brands that are really leading the conversation and leading by example on really putting not only an EPNL, which is environmental profit and loss, but adding the social component as well. How do we come in here and really fairly measure the value of this product? We have more brands that are talking to their consumers with their products, there's an, you know, a stronger awakening and more consumers who care about where their products come from. Is it paid a living wage? You know, I care about you know the, the components of this fiber. Someone's life is behind this fiber and this this blouse I'm wearing. And was it made responsibly? Was it you know? So there is a dynamic changing, and we do have several brands that are really leading on the deal of what does a responsible business model look like. We've got several um, research and briefing documents that are underway of like, what is best practices as a farmer? You asked me to have best practices. Why can't I come to you as a brand and say, I'm asking you to have best practices around your business model. And here's what that looks like. So it is a conversation that's front and center. It's a conversation that we're having in in a number of different ways. We're talking about ways to, you know, cut the paradigm of like preferential tariffs for responsible fibers and, and organic fibers. So it is, there's, we're going to have to find it. This is the complex problems require multiple interventions. And so, Peter, to your first point, it is not simple. The dynamic of creating the best business model to really adopt and enforce and support living wages and fair prices to farmers for the fibers and restorative and regenerative agriculture is is like the next big, huge thing. And this is where we're going to have to have bold and courageous action one step at a time. But the business model piece, it's not going to happen unless we address this, quite frankly. Thanks. Um, coming to another question from uh, from Justin Guest, uh, which comes to the C word, circularity. Um, sustainability is not just about production, it's about the end of life. What should the sector be doing about end of life materials, recover, design for recycling? Um, who wants to come in and comment on that really rather large agenda? Craig, you've not said anything for a while, so um, I'll, I'll come to you first because I, I don't know who grins sm- l- loudest to the question. So over to you. Thanks. Uh, as I said before, uh, April is the forest grower, and and not not the manufacturer. We we uh, lead. We feed our sister companies APR and Sattery. But uh, in fact, uh, April has made 
some quite ambitious commitments and Ray's uh, leading was perfect because um, we've made some really ambitious commitments, which we've called our April 2030 commitments. And they include increased material efficiency and circularity. Uh, and that's about chemical recovery, which I know we've touched on earlier and is a very sensitive issue for uh, viscose production. Um, we've touched on water and we've made a commitment to, to a 25% less processed water use per product tonne. And we've also made a very strong commitment to 20% recycled textile used, uh, that's pre and post consumer um, recycled textiles used in, in viscose fibre. And in fact, our sister company, Sattery, is, is already made significant uh, investments with a range of partners in, in developing innovative next generation cellulistic fibres um, with, with products like Phoenix. And clearly one of the challenges is exactly what has already been raised. They're more expensive to produce um, and there is currently no market premium uh, existing for those products. And so I don't know if it's about educating customers or, and brands as much as it is about explaining the processes. And of course, as they come to scale, you'll hope that the price goes down. But to get to scale, you need to ensure that you have access to a market. And so there's a bit of a uh, chicken and egg challenge there, of course, for companies to to go into the investments related to, to recycled and recycled fashion. Thanks, Peter. Who else wants to come in on this one? It's uh, it's it's obviously a rather challenging area. Um, so um, I'll be happy to pitch in because there's probably I don't know. I think we were just telling it this morning. Over 20 different amazing initiatives, mainly regionally focused, that are really really working on circularity as far as the recyclability piece and cities that are voting in laws for collection pieces. There's a number of companies that are really uh, telling some great stories. There's a company in Milan that's been started in the 20s with you know recycling wool um, army blankets into into fibers and materials. So it's an amazing recycling and circular systems and solutions. There's also a lot of happening on the business model side of what does it look like to go into, you know, retake and resale and redo. So there's some great innovations happening. So the challenge, I think, for circularity right now is that we have, because it has to be regionally based, that it's not something that just can scale. It has to be something that's replicated region by region. And, and, uh, and so I'm very hopeful that that is, I think that's one of the things that can be ramped up rather quickly across these regions. It's going to require some investments, but there's business model reasons to do that. So there's some great things happening out there. We just need to be willing to replicate them, make the investment to spread those in various regions. There's a need to sort of balance two things that on the one hand, a sort of global um, norm for want of a better way of putting it, but at the same time, that's still being appropriate for, for local situations. Um, but also, which is what I hope we've tried to do with the apparel barometer, it's, it's being able to share those good experiences. Um, you know, there's the, 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 that sort of collaboration perhaps needs to happen more. Um, specific question to you, Tara, um, from Paula Rogers. Does the US trust protocol labeling only apply to 100 percent cotton or a mix of US and other cotton sources or fibers? I think there's sort of a couple of questions in there. Is it is it just cotton or is it other fibers and is it just US or others as well? So, Tara, over to you. Okay, well, important to clarify at this stage, and as it's a new program as well, that the focus is really on um, engagement at the farm level and tracking of that data up through the supply chain. So it's a business to business focused initiative in it 
in this instance, but it is powering the data that, that brands will use to consume, to communicate to their consumers about the impacts of their products. So that's going to be through aspects like product labeling or corporate reporting on their impacts of their products and how they're redu- tracking their reductions. It's not intended um, from the first instance to give a um, a consumer hang tag, for example, Uh, but we will be working with brands to work out how they want to communicate that best as part of their overall approach to sustainable raw materials and the commitments they've made. But certainly in terms of the... um, uh, the operational aspect of the trust protocol, um, uh, you are not required to use only US cotton tr- trust protocol fiber. It's about tracking US cotton through your um, supply chain, and that can be alongside other fibers. But it's the US cotton portion of your product that we will be tracking in the value chain and providing the transparency for. Okay, thanks for that, for that clarification. Um, uh, question from Eric Ho, um, saying that in, in some industries, um, groups of consumers have have, dem- you know, been brought together to demonstrate that they are prepared to pay more, for example, for for organic products. Um, what what does the panel think about whether the textile industry can have a united effort to influence end consumers? We're back on the sort of consumer issue here. What 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 thoughts might people have? We actually did a little bit of research and uh, went to some organic food uh, programs. And it was like, it's more than food, it's fiber too. And uh, we actually did some surveys and things like that. And it's amazing, you know, people that are committed and would only buy organic milk had no idea that you could buy organic sheets or socks or anything. So so it's interesting that, you know, while they're dedicated and they want to, they all bought in into the organic production systems and what it does for soil, blah, 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 all the stuff. It's like, they don't even have fiber materials on their radar screen. So it shows that even educated consumers don't really know where their products come from. They think milk comes from a grocery store, you know. Uh, So I think that there's a significant amount of education that we could do through, um, you know, the organic food conduits and that organic food customer. Uh, So yeah, there's a lot of, you know, where do you start with consumer education? And uh, it is it it is a challenge, even with what I perceived as an educated consumer. So it is about buying habits. It's about yeah, educating and engaging consumers. It's it's that's going to be a big obstacle, and that's why we want to empower brands and have them you know talk to their consumers more effectively and engage them. They already have that conduit. So what do we do to help them convey the value of more uh, sustainable and responsible and organic products? Okay, thank you, Um, Avis. And then I'll come to Craig because you're nodding vociferously on this one as well. So. I think Loria made the, the, the key point there, uh, which is this is, this is an exercise in consumer education and, and it will take time and it will in part be aided by the point I was making earlier in terms of being able to have verifiable, solid information that can be shared with consumers. One of the reasons why the food piece of it did take off is because a lot of that is properly labeled and credibly validated whether by regulators or other programs that consumers have gotten to trust. We don't yet have uh, equivalence in the in the textile space, whether it is for material or whether it is for social compliance. But, but with more recognition and more uh, um, verifiable information transmission to consumers, that might change. But I also do want to make the point, uh, and again, I think Lorraine sort of uh, hinted at this, uh, and, and go back to the, the, the observation, uh, both first and fifth of the barometer, we shouldn't be looking at consumers as the solution, right? Just get them to change and everything else will follow. There is a holistic sort of entanglement of issues here uh, that need to be kept uh, in mind. And so I would suggest that continuing to work 
it, at that confluence of consumer, industry, government standards is where you need to, con uh, to focus your energies and not simply say, well, here's my, here's my path and this is where I'm going to concentrate. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be betting all my, all my money on that one uh, approach as an answer. So I just wanted to make that point. Thanks, Craig. Do you want to add something to that? And that, that's exactly what I was going to say. We've already caught, we've already said earlier. There's no one single solution. There's no magic bullet. And trying to shift this discussion purely to consumers is is not going to solve the problem. There still needs to be action all the way through the supply chain back to growers. In fact, um, if we're going to work on this problem together, and it's it's complicated, it's difficult, but simply shifting the focus to the consumer is not going to ultimately achieve uh, the answer that we're all looking for here. But thanks very much. Okay, cool. Uh, right, we've got time for, for me to give you one last question before we before we end, uh, which actually follows on quite nicely from what Craig's just been saying, that if we can't just rely on the um, consumer, what other points of pressure might there be? And Leslie Shell's asked about ESG investors. Um, you know, um, they were Sky News has been having a big thing on ESG this past week. Um, to what extent do, do any of you believe that that is, you know, really shifting the dial? Um, Tara, perhaps perhaps come to you. I think I'm going to call that a sort of medium term impact on the way that um, the industry responds. I think it probably is affecting some areas um more imminently than others. So I have seen activity um, in the responsible investor um, sector really looking for investment. So it's a good time if you're an innovator in sustainable textiles, if you're generating new fibres, if you're um, uh, providing solutions, it's a great time to be on the radar of investors. There is money. Um, and in, But in terms of the flip side of that, and are investors really driving the activity for business i think there's probably still a gap there because and that gap comes from understanding and their ability to really measure and and trust the data that's available and, and there isn't a lot of data available you know we've talked about that already how complex it is how we can't compare apples with oranges so if you're not even in the sector and you're sitting outside of that as an investor or finance organization how do you really get a grip on which companies are doing the right thing mm -hmm. and therefore are more investable but for sure you know the BlackRock, etc it's maturing. So I think that's going to keep gathering momentum. I certainly hope it does. So again, the, the, the need for, for information and insight and communication. Anyone else have any last comments to make on, on that point? Okay, right. We are now um, very much at um, two o'clock. Well, two o'clock here, o'clock, whatever time, wherever you are is. Um, so uh, I'm going to call the uh, discussion for close. Um, Quickly, just to say where we see the process going next, the uh, the barometer will be is is with the printers at the moment, or not the printers, the whoever you know the designers at the moment. So it should be available in the next uh, the next day or two. So um, um, I hope you'll all um, enjoy reading that. Um, where do we go next? We would like to see this process being an annual, ongoing cycle to try and revisit the issues that came out of this um, this year's uh, barometer and to see how um, things evolve over time and hopefully to become another resource along with the other excellent resources that are out there for insight knowledge um, in this sector uh, and to support companies in, in approaching the challenges they face and very much to be practical. It's not about talking, you know, as Avedia said earlier on, it's not about sort of high level strategic. It's okay, so on a Monday morning, what do you need to do differently? What what difference in behaviours do you need to, to be exhibiting? Um, but for the time being, um, I'd like to thank very, very much um, our panellists, um, Avedia Severian from RAP, uh, Tara Luckman from US Cotton 
Trust Protocol, Larry Pepper from Textile Exchange and, and Craig Triballate from April. Thanks very much for your time. Uh, thanks very much for your comments. It's been really good fun as well, apart from anything else. So thanks very much. And, and to the audience, thank you for attending. Thank you.